Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are talking about the metaverse. And depending on where you stand on your opinion of this, you'll either have just eye rolled or become genuinely excited. And that's the line that we're going to straddle today as we explore this topic with Web3 and technology expert Theo Priestley. Welcome to the show, Theo. Hi, thank you for having me. It's been it's uh, it's good to be here. I, I love chatting about this stuff. Yeah, me too. And I'm so, so excited that you're on the show because you are just incredibly highly known and regarded inside of the industry and inside of this space. And I might just get you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. I have been in the technology industry for about 20 years now in various guises. I've worked for startups. I've worked for startup accelerators. I've worked for large enterprise B2B companies. I've spent the best part of the last 10, 15 years actually writing about technology trends and then giving keynote talks to events and corporate events as well and conferences. Just basically my opinion, my research, my kind of sort of take on what's happening. And all of the things that I've seen over the last few years are starting to sort of culminate and coalesce around what we're talking about today, which is kind of like the metaverse and Web3 you know, all the trends that we, we discussed in terms of uh, big data, cloud, AI, IoT, et cetera, et cetera, is kind of all converging onto this this topic of the metaverse and, and supported by kind of the ideologies and some of the technologies around Web3 itself. And so your accent, where, so where are you from? Ah, yes. I, I am from uh, Edinburgh in Scotland for, for anyone who uh, can recognize a Scottish tone. <laughs> yeah, great. But you're, are you residing in the US now? Have you moved over or are you still in Scotland? No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm in Scotland. I do everything oh, wow. from here. Um, oh, yeah, I amazing. spent a couple of years in Amsterdam on a project, but uh, generally I tend to travel around, mm. you know, for obviously for work, for conferences, that kind of sort of thing. But yeah, yeah my, base is, my base is in Scotland your own little, well, I should say it's not really little, but your own corner of the world. And what's great is that I've seen you pop into lots of different events, technology, um, sort of speaking opportunities. So you've got this sort of truly global perspective that you bring to this too, because when we're talking about the metaverse or even some of those technologies that you listed, they're all at different stages of development and maturity in different parts of the world, right? But when we talk about it, we sort of like lump it up like everybody is on the same trajectory and path when it comes to the metaverse. So how important is it for you to sort of think about the different maturity levels that different markets um, are on with it? Yeah, I mean, this goes back to some of the things that I've seen in the past where I think it's, when you look at a piece of research, especially from a, a firm like Gartner or Forrester, for example, you have that impression that everybody is on the same path, that everybody is on the same level of maturity and understanding. And even sort of really older technologies like business process management, software, case management, all those kind of sort of older style things, a lot of people are still using pen and paper to draw process maps and understand how the business operates before. And they have no idea about automation. And yet mm. you have this perception that everybody is highly automated. Everybody knows exactly what everybody else is doing in the organization. There's no silos. 
you know, that kind of thing. Everybody's using AI and RPA, which is robotic process automation and things. And it's not the case at all. I mean, we're working with a lot of video game industry uh, studios at the moment, and Mm -hmm. everybody still uses Excel, for example, to to design their game mechanics and processes. So it it kind of gives you an idea of some industries portray themselves as being very technologically advanced, but in the background, there's a lot of old stuff that's still kicking around. So I think it's interesting with with the metaverse, because I think everybody is running at 100 miles an hour without really understanding where in their own maturity they, they actually sit. Mm. It's such a good point too that internally inside of business we're still operating with really old school technologies. Like we're even trying to catch up to what you know these young, cool Gen Z consumers are using and get our heads around that. We're definitely not implementing that kind of tech or platforms inside of the business. So it feels like there is a lot of opportunities to maybe start there. So if you're trying to talk about like simulation or digital twins or that component of the metaverse, how could you bring that into your organization for planning versus always thinking about how you can kind of generate a sale out of it? Yeah, I think um, the, one of the first things I, I always used to sort of talk to the companies about was look at your internal capabilities first. What are the gaps in understanding? What are the gaps in technologies mm-hmm. that you need to be able to get to the level that you would be able to buy and Im- implement something that's more advanced than what you have. I think even companies who were looking at AI and machine learning, uh, they were being sold on the promise that this would obviously present you know, levels of intelligence, business intelligence beyond what they had before without understanding it took six to 12 months to train the algorithms on the data that they had before mm. they even saw a bit of a return. So I tend to spend a lot of time, and I know you've kind of commented on this in the past on, on, about the stuff that I write on LinkedIn, but I tend to kind of peel back the veneer and the hype Mm-hmm. And try and educate people as to, you know, what the real story is behind all of these trends. Yeah, definitely. And I really love that. It's so refreshing. So if you don't follow Theo on LinkedIn, you absolutely have to because, you know, there are a lot of people on there who are like the, I don't want to like shame, name and shame anyone, but a lot of like metaverse gurus and people who are really like evidently in love with this idea of the metaverse And then I came across your name and your content and you were still talking about the metaverse, but almost like, like you said, peeling back the layers of, you know, what are some of the things that potentially aren't working well or that we're not thinking about or talking about? So do you find that you're quite a a rarity in that space of really talking about it more kind of honestly and frankly? Yeah. I mean, uh, you you have two, it's very, you have two people, um, well, two opposite ends of the spectrum, shall we say. You've got the cheerleaders who basically just spend all day jumping up and down, shaking their pom-poms, saying everything is great. <laughs> and then you have the absolute cynics. But the thing is, is that I'm, I'm not a cynic just mm. to be critical. I'm a cynic because I've been in the industry for like 20 years and I've seen how, how it really works. And I kind of just made it my stance over the years to tell it like it is, whether it's brutal truth or not. And I get that notoriety and some people love me for it and some people loathe me for it. You know, I don't I make as many friends as I do enemies kind of thing, but I kind of enjoy that. But, you know, I do get comments, you know, and private messages from people who basically say, Thank you for saying this, because you basically say what I can't. 
because mm. some of these people are actually employed by these companies mm-hmm. and they can't openly say, well, actually, it doesn't work or we're too early or it doesn't work. You know, it shouldn't be like yeah. this, et cetera, et cetera. So I, you know, I don't mind sticking my neck out for it. I've got thick skin. Yeah. And, you know, you're doing it with the intention of making it better and getting it to that place where the cheerleaders want to get it too, right? But just coming at it from the perspective of knowing where the gaps are. And I feel like a part of what you just touched on where we get these people inside of these organizations that focus on the metaverse or even inside of companies when we talk about the metaverse, we sort of bucket it up into, air quote, the metaverse. But the metaverse doesn't currently exist. It's made up of like a multitude of different things that ladder up into this concept or idea of the metaverse. So how important is it, do you think, to focus on that, to break it down and look at the different aspects of how it's created and therefore how you should start to focus your investments versus, you know, do you think actually, as a question, do you think that it should be that we should conceptualize the idea of the metaverse and work towards that? It's strange because it can be industry agnostic, but it can be also industry specific. Mm-hmm. So I don't expect pharmaceutical companies or in, in, in the big industrial complexes, uh, manufacturing, to be going into the metaverse and plant and, and, and creating interesting little uh, brand experiments and NFTs because that's not their thing. They're more interested in the simulation side of things and understanding what you know how to simulate at scale, take that data, take real world data into the metaverse or into a virtual world environment and understand how the two can sort of coexist and give them insight. And I think my, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I would urge people to do is, you know, how does the metaverse apply in your, in your business or or your sector Mm. or your industry? You know, for retail, it's very different because it's all about brand experiences and customer experiences and getting people into be immersed in your brand or your goods and services in a completely different way. And like I say, for manufacturing or for warehousing or for even oil and gas, you know, who've been playing around with VR and augmented reality already, it's another layer to either add training simulation in terms of, you know, what happens, what if scenarios and things like that. So, you know, the metaverse is, it can be all things to, different people. So what part of the metaverse are you most excited about? I mean, oh, naturally, I'm really excited about the, um, you know, the social aspects. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, the the entertainment side, the social aspects, the immersion, the ability to lose yourself in a, in a, in a completely different world, I think is, is something that really interests me personally. I mean, I've been playing games, video games for uh, nearly 40 years now, or, or probably longer. And some of the best ones are the ones that I've sunk two to three years playing or longer uh, because the experience kind of sort of really attracts me. Mm. Things like Skyrim and EVE Online and World of Warcraft and Elder Scrolls Online, for example, big expansive worlds that you can be anything you want to be and you spend a fair bit of time building, building a different life there. And I think those kind of sort of things where it allows people to, I guess extend their personality in different ways that they can't do in real life and and explore that personality in different ways as well. Mm. And of course, that allows brands and and other companies to basically tap into that as well and understand their customers on a completely different level and also build experiences that they they can't do physically, you know, which is where sort of NFTs come in as well because that kind of sort of taps into people who like to collect 
you know, reward schemes, memberships, all those kind of sort of thing. But it's a completely different way of tapping into that audience. And I like how you started that by saying it's the social aspect because it can be, it can obviously, I think, take a lot of people to, well, it's about me in a room by myself, kind of escaping into this virtual world. But it can also be then obviously connecting with people online or even like educating myself, learning about different cultures online really by really immersing myself in that experience. So it feels like there's a lot of scope there to connect people. Do you think that the metaverse or Web3 or this evolution of our relationship with technology is known to be by most people something that that tears people apart or that disconnects people from each other versus that social connector that you're talking about? All the way through history, we've always we've always had things or trends that have popped up that have, that people say, "Oh, that's removed our social connection." Mm-hmm. So newspapers. I mean, there's a, there's lots of famous memes or photographs of uh, throughout history, and one of them is you know when people say, "Oh, social media has made us more distant and disconnected than ever before," and then and then you presented with a photograph from like the 1940s where there are 40 people sitting on a bus reading newspapers and not one of them is talking to each other and it's just like well we've always you know human beings are social creatures by default Mm. but it doesn't mean to say that we have to be social creatures 100% of the time so I think you know the the idea that some technologies disconnect us I think is a false narrative when in fact it actually connects us in a completely different way. It doesn't mean to say that we're connected locally from a community perspective. It could actually mean that we're connected globally. Some of these create filter bubbles and, and you know echo chambers, which are quite dangerous. And there's nothing to say that the metaverse won't exacerbate some of that. But at the same time, you'll have people who create communities within the metaverse because they have like-minded experiences or they want to be immersed in the same kind of experience because they share a common common interest like movies films mm. music those, those kind of things so yeah and what you're speaking to there i think is so true as well that you can look back at examples of where there have been these warnings about how this thing is going to like ruin civilization and disrupt humanity because of the context of where the world is from a development phase and i guess our fear of change as well So based on the context that we're in right now and kind of like the turning point of this decade, what's something that you think is really pivotal to shaping our relationship with technology? So I'm a a firm believer in the ideology of Web3, which is decentralization. Mm -hmm. I would like that core tenet to be, you know, it it mirrors what Tim Berners-Lee basically created the Web for or as, which was decentralized. It was um, in control of people well, people were in control of it separately. It wasn't in, in corporation, in the, in the hands of the co- big corporates that we have now. People had control of their own data and things like that. And I, I really like that idea of Web3 almost going back to its roots. Or Web3 is taking the internet all the way back to its roots that it started from. And almost like a second, taking a second go at it this time around. And and that, I think, over the next sort of decade is going to be really interesting to see being built. And I see this happening almost alongside what we have right now. 
I don't believe that we should be building it on top because building it on top just compounds the control that already ha- that is already had by these large sort of technology companies. I think what we should be looking at is building some of these foundational structures and infrastructure and technologies um, off to the side and coexisting with the current one and then obviously allowing people that choice to live in one world or live in the other. I think there is a choice to be had now and and it would be nice to see people have that choice. So decentralization and, um, you know, things like DAOs and the ability to distribute power where it's not kind of run by these big players, which it currently obviously very much is. Do you feel like that's a pipe dream? Like, is that actually realistic that we will get to that point where the big players aren't able to just completely push out the smaller players? Like I said, I think it's a matter of coexisting. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, web. you have Web 2 and you you have the ideology and the, the infrastructure of Web 3. And I think the two can actually coexist, like I say, and give people that choice of which camp do you re- actually want to be in. And both will run parallel for a, a long time until such time as there may be a migration that happens over the next few decades that say, right, well, no more centralized power structures will go off to, to live in a decentralized world. I think it is... It is about choice. And I think it is about giving people that choice. I know Tim Berners-Lee, for example, is trying to get people to understand, you know, what data sovereignty is and giving people back control of the privacy and 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 their data with what he calls Project Solid. But the trouble is that Project Solid is almost being built on top of Web 2 and not a lot of people really care about it. I think it's just going to have to take another big movement how the web started and it'll take a long time. Mm. I think the other thing as well is that we really don't have patience anymore. If you look at what's being built, everything has to be built now or within the next six months (laughs) or whatever, because Mm -hmm. it's been driven, again, it's been driven by, funnily enough, but driven by centralized power structures, which are the VCs. So the VCs say, "We we want to see this being built. We want to see this built within the next two years. We want an exit in the next three years. You know, and that's how we make our money. And of course, that just rinse and repeat cycle doesn't actually get us anywhere. Yeah. How do you make an immediate return on investment versus potentially the return on investment is maybe less financial? It's more about creating those platforms where people can come together, connect, collaborate, get creative and imaginative so I had to look up Tim Bernalee, by the way. So he's a computer scientist. For anyone that isn't as educated as Theo, so something popped up that he said, which was the original idea of the web was that it should be a collaborative space where you can communicate by sharing information. It feels like at the moment, data, information, even when we think about things like cybersecurity and the protection of what we have created and what we generate, feels very competitive versus collaborative and particularly in that technology space. There's a little bit more in that. It feels like in that physical tactile world, for example, food, there's sharing of patents, there's amplification of ideas for scale, there's collaboration with you know retailer partners and other food manufacturers and suppliers and farmers. It feels like it's less of a case in the space of technology. Is that fair? Um. Yeah, yes and no, I guess. Um, there's there's always areas that allow for increased collaboration. I think because there's co-opetition and there's and mm. cooperation versus competition. 
and obviously the the more we're the company that I work uh, well I founded and I work I obviously work in I'm a great believer in in sort of partnerships because both you know there's mutual benefit in terms of scale in terms of being able to sort of attack the market help customers help them you know help yourselves plug gaps that you both have kind of sort of thing and I think collaboration is is something that everybody should practice I know it's always talk about a competitive edge, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, if you're all trying to attack the market with your competitive edge, everybody's going to lose at some point. I think it's always better if you try and co- find ways to collaborate and then share, basically share the prize rather than compete for the prize. Technology should allow for that, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Oh, particularly the de- decentralized technology where you have people accessing it and creating from it that potentially didn't have the ability to do that before to gain that greater diversity of creation. Well, that's well, that's what open source is really. You know, open source is about the community coming together to actually develop software and actually add bits and enhance it as it's developed and then submit that code and everybody else can reuse that code or change the code. And of course, that can fork off to create other different aspects of software but the whole idea is that the community is coming together to actually build that software out at a much faster pace than you probably would if you you know if you had a a proprietary piece of software and it took you five years to develop by making it open source and the community involved and everybody collaborating you could probably cut that by a fifth for example so again part a core part of web3 and decentralization is making a lot of the software or the infrastructure as well open source for people to build on and improve. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So that's re- that's a really exciting part of the future. And I think probably another one for me would be gaming. So I know you mentioned gaming before. I can see you're sitting on like a full-on proper gamer <laughs> chair as well. Very impressive. Um, meanwhile, I'm on my boring office chair. So gaming has been around for a while, right? And it's valued, um, I hope I'm getting this right, over like $300 billion today. And it's a component, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, component of the metaverse concept, but it feels like companies in particular have been really slow to kind of, you know, get on that bandwagon of how do you create immersive experiences for consumers in there? How do you create social connection? How do you create more creation through decentralized, you know, idea generation? So why is gaming kind of just like plodding along without being maximized as an opportunity? I think everybody's everybody has seen gaming as a waste of time. Mm. But the reality is is that gaming from the creative industry's point of view actually pulls in more money than than the movie making industry. Wow. And yet, you know, it's always seen as some kind of sort of poor cousin that <laughs> is a, a black sheep of the family and a waste mm. of space. Mm. And I'm really I've, I'm always surprised that you can put product placement in movies easier than you can than people think about putting product placement in video games. Uh, where it's in context, obviously, you wouldn't put a Coke bottle in a game that's all about fighting dragons, for example. But the idea of of making a brand or or getting involved in video games in context has always been completely lost to to business. And I think this is only just starting to come to people's minds because the metaverse is basically pushing this forward. So rather than looking at it from a video game perspective, now they're looking at it from an immersive experience, like you say. But a game is always an immersive experience anyway. 
So the same technologies and the same methodologies that exist in creating video games are going to be the ones that are going to help create metaverse experiences as well. So, mm. you know, everybody who has experience in creative direction, concept art, um, level design, development using Unreal and Unity and CryEngine, for example, are all going to become quite sought after hot skills within these brands and within these companies who want to actually tap into what the metaverse can do for them. And it feels like a, a really great space for brands to do that authentically, like to your point, finding the right placement that feels like it's, it's sort of like enhancing, I guess, the experience that someone is having versus like, you know, where we focus on product placement in movies, it's a one-way conversation. Whereas in gaming, you can have interaction, you can have, you know, story building even for your brand or your product. It feels like a really great opportunity. And I mean, I would have hoped that we'd move past this whole idea of like a gamer is a old guy in a basement playing by himself in his undies. But, you know, now particularly with like gamification, gamification across like a multitude of platforms and audiences and the scale opportunity, but perhaps we're not quite there yet. I think those kind of sort of old perceptions are changing quite rapidly now. I mean, if I pull up something really quickly here, digital spend, right? So global digital game spending is expected to reach 129 billion in 2025. Now that that's actually spending from I buy something in a video game and it's a skin or it's a, you know a weapon or or maybe it's just a piece of content, you know, another season pass or something. But again, that's part of the missed opportunity where, you know, it's been ignored. You know, we see games as a waste of time. And yet there are people basically adding 130 billion to the economy and the global economy by spending money in video games. Now, if, obviously, as a brand or, or or someone or a business who wants to tap into that that kind of that market, you have to kind of look behind it, look beyond the sort of stereotypes that you held mm. before, mm. because the, the the fact is that the demographics are not just like, you know, balding men or, or sort of aging women sitting behind the screen kind of thing. It's actually children, kids, uh, teenagers, you know, 20, 20 year olds who all have like disposable incomes. And that's how they want to spend that money. You know, and this differs per region as well. So in so in Southeast Asia, for example, there's a lot more, a lot bigger predisposition to actually spend money to win a game rather than versus the West, which is they'll play the game to win. So again, you know, from a business perspective, you know your audience, mm -hmm. know where your customer base is, know how to sort of tap into those cultural differences as well. Yeah, definitely. And I guess think beyond the stereotypes or the limitations of your own knowledge of that industry. I speak to the actual consumers who are using it and who are, you know, using it for entertainment, but also for social connection with their peers. Mm -hmm. That's how they're learning, educating themselves. That's how they're building their own skills through these competitions that they have in gaming. Um, so they could be playing just magic in cards with their friends. That's cool too. So well, this... Yeah. <laughs> there's there's uh, kind of a broad array of air quote gaming, uh, kind of similar, I guess, to even how we're talking about the metaverse, right? It's like we say air quote metaverse, but it's made up of just so many different opportunities that you could go after. 
Yeah, like I said, the metaverse is many things to many people. I mean, if you ask 100 people, you'll get 100 different definitions of what the metaverse means. And that's not a bad thing, to be honest. I think it's only really the technology industry who spends so much time fussing over what the definition means. But the idea of the metaverse being, you know, an extension of physical reality, but allowing people to be anything they want to be, just means that the metaverse can represent anything that you want it to represent. And I think that's probably the most exciting part for me of the metaverse or building parts of the metaverse is allowing people that the ability to create those experiences themselves as well so we've seen things like minecraft and roblox where you know that you're presented with a platform and you're given the tools to basically build worlds for yourself and i fully believe that there will be where we have websites today we'll have worlds tomorrow you know, people will be able to create their own immersive spaces for themselves that represent themselves. And then people should be able to build their own immersive spaces like they do websites and invite people into those spaces and feel safe knowing that this is my space. This is how I represent myself. This is my metaverse. And, you know, come on in and have fun as well kind of thing. I like how you're, when you're talking about technology and how it might evolve into the future and the metaverse, you're kind of constantly going back to choice, which I think is is really powerful that it's our individual choice, how we choose to engage in those worlds and what types of investments we as companies and brands are going to be making in those worlds and how we want technology to evolve in those spaces. So connected into that is this idea of how we're influenced to come up with those ideas or or choices that we'll make through the inspiration of science fiction. It's like the, you know, like creating the path for how these technologies might evolve. And I know we we exchange well, I I reached out to Theo. I say we exchanged, I reached out to Theo because he posted something really, really fascinating about how science fiction influences the technology that we create or potentially how far behind we are. In versus where we thought we would be. Yeah, I mean, I I, I watch a, an awful lot of science fiction from, you know, from The Expanse all the way through to the old science fiction movies from the 40s and 50s and 60s. And it is interesting. And even I often make reference to the World's Fair from like the 20s and 30s when, you know, the world emerged just from the First World War. There was a, a, a huge boom in terms of imagination and the World's Fair in New York, I think it was in San Francisco, perhaps that, um, or actually, I think it was New York's trade fair, where there was just this explosion of creativity and imagination, you know, that we're only seeing today. But they were already talking about home automation, self-driving cars, flying machines, rockets, you know, moon landings, all these kind of sort of things. They were all there. Robots. Mm. They were already thinking that far ahead back in the 1920s. And I kind of feel that we've slowed down a little bit just now. Um, we've got a, a slight limit because we seem to have imagined everything, or, or, <laughs> or we're starting to realise a lot of things that we're that we've imagined before. But yeah, to your point, yeah, we're far away from having transporters or uh, replicators, for example, that could actually solve a lot of problems in the world today. But mm. and so many of those technologies are like would be amazing to solve some of the pro- like problems and tension points and pain points that we have in the world 
do you feel like with technology and I guess in in that train of thought of sci-fi that we're more interested or we gravitate more to those ones that are just fun and cool and novel versus actually helpful? Yeah, because I mean, uh, if you look at the helpful ones, they're actually mundane and boring. Mm. Whereas the cool ones like laser beams, you know, <laughs> ray guns from the 1960s and, and transporters <laughs> and things like that are mm. and warp speed, you know, they're 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 things that are that capture the imagination because they're big, bold, and and they're kind of world changing on a different level. Mm. But if you say um, replicator or something like that, you know, or a tricorder, for example, it's kind of like, ah, uh, well, it's not very it's nice, but it's not very exciting because it's not gonna it's not gonna propel us into the future. But actually, when you think about it, it actually solves huge amounts of problems that will enable us to propel ourselves into a future a lot faster. So there is that kind of balance of getting everybody excited about the possibilities of what technology can bring, but at the same time, reminding them that some of the biggest advances in civilization and society have come from the really boring stuff. The the ones that we get kind of caught up in as well are sometimes the ones that we obsess over talking about as, you know, like futurists, let's just say. But they're also the ones that scare us the most. So I know in one of your TEDx talks, you said that AI will be AI, obviously AI robotics is a key component of what we talk about quite frequently when we talk about the future. It's also something that we fear quite heavily when we think about like robots as being these slaves to humanity who then potentially take over <laughs> and run for prime minister and rule us all. So what what is this relationship that we have with like science fiction painting these visions of the future that scare us in a in a fascinating I, way? I think we like the 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 the, the dystopian visions of the future actually fascinate us more than the utopian ones because the utopian ones never seem real or never seen are seen as uh, achievable or sustainable mm. and of course they're not because i mean if you've seen you know we've all seen the matrix for example and the whole reason why everybody doesn't like the matrix or everybody breaks out of the matrix is because it's too perfect <laughs> i think that's why uh, the, the reason why it kind of failed the first time you know when they when they actually created the concept itself and so we like misery and we like dystopia because it makes us think, actually, th there's more lessons in dystopia, in dystopian visions, because it kind of makes you think about what could go wrong rather than how to how to make it go right. And there's, you know, so when we talk about AI, you know, we always have the same vision, which is it goes wrong, it becomes self-aware, it takes over the world because it learns by how horrible and rubbish human beings really are. But then that should make us sit up and think, well, why why would something think that we're horrible and rubbish? And maybe it's because we are horrible and rubbish, in which case, well, maybe we should pay attention to why we're horrible and rubbish and change some of that. Mm. Do you think it deters us from creating certain technologies or going going down that path because we're almost too afraid of our own human frailty and ability to generate you know negative futures? Yeah, you've got a you've got a point there, especially in in terms of artificial general intelligence, or certainly recognizing that we we could potentially create something that is either sentient or there is a you know a free energy, for example, something that gives us sustainable and en a sustainable energy source that uh, requires you know not a lot of resources to create it. 
and I think in the back of our mind it's the 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 loss of control that is potentially the biggest fear factor. So with AI, it's the loss of control over from ourselves. You know, we no longer are in control of the world because, or certainly the the, the world that sits on the foundation built by technology, because suddenly we have this kind of sort of technology itself that could control all of it. So that scares us because we lose control. And then with the from the free energy or from the energy side of things, suddenly, you know, you have this abundance of energy. So now there's a loss of control in terms of how do we how do the capitalists make money? How do the oil companies make money? Um, how do we charge people from a utilities point of view if they have endless amounts of energy and stuff like that? So there's a loss of control there because, you know, suddenly people have a lot more freedom out of that. So again, goes back to choice. What do we choose? Do we choose to give people the freedom and and choice and the ability to do things for themselves, or do we want to, to remove that choice by deciding not to release those kind of technologies? Yeah, it's a really interesting and and a big question, and it's interesting too with you know what you were saying about decentralized futures and where we want to gain more individual control. A lot of the times when we look at sci-fi, it's it's these dystopian futures where we have an intervening intermediary power that is controlling us that we're almost trying to break away from. So maybe I'm just repeating the same question as before, but are we doomed to be controlled? Well, I mean, if we look at removing control or look at removing governance completely, then you have anarchy. I mean... A decentralization works up to a point, but even pirates of uh, ye olden Caribbean lore, for example, had a governing body, and that was, uh, you know, the captain. You know, I've got actually a, a couple of hefty tomes. In fact, that one there is actually um, the general history of the pirates, um, <laughs> which is considered like the authoritative book. And, and I'm really int- fascinated by the dynamics of the ship itself, you know, the captain, the first mate, you know, how all of that power and decision-making authority filtered down, even to the point where the crew had a say. And if the captain actually did something that was against the wishes of the crew and the ship, he could be taken out. And that's kind of like where we are with DAOs, for example, decentralized autonomous organizations. You know, at the you know, everybody makes a big point of technology supporting this concept, but at this at the root you've got people and people have very human problems. And one of those problems is they don't like authority, but when they're given too much freedom, they don't know what to do either. You know, everybody talks and then there's no action. Mm. So I think there will always be a certain amount of not control governance, shall we say, to allow people to execute and act rather than just sit around and talk. Mm. Yeah, it's a it's a really beautiful segue that you did there as well, back from pirates to DAOs. <laughs> <laughs> we've gone we've gone full circle in the conversations. One last question for you. Sure. Which is what your personal go-to is when you're trying to gain like a different or a fresh perspective on something and you're you're trying to look outside of familiar topics? Oh, that's a really good question, actually, because I don't think there you can have a go-to because then you just form, again, a common consensus with your favorite source, and that just introduces a particular bias. Mm. Um, I just read everything and anything that I can, whether I agree with it or not. And in fact, if I disagree with it, I'll make a statement about it, and which is obviously <laughs> more often than not on, on LinkedIn, for example. <laughs> but I just, I just want to learn 
more. And I've always devoured science fiction books as a kid and comic books as well. So I think that kind of sort of mindset in terms of just being open about what the potentials are mm. has given me just the breadth of understanding and, and just being able to sort of join dots where other people's just see you know, straight lines. You know, I see lots of sort of different connections and threads to pull on. And I, I, it's just something that I've always really enjoyed doing, just reading everything and anything that I can. Because I think serendipity plays a, a, a lot, a big part in just being able to see connections, I think. And I think that I think people don't appreciate that part of it, a part of life and just part of just generally thinking. Um, it would be remiss of me not to ask what your favourite sci-fi story is. My favourite sci-fi story, actually, my book is Gateway by Frederick Pohl. I have a particular affinity to that, um, and I Am Legend by Richard Matheson as well. Oh, um, okay. I would, I would urge people to read the book. Don't watch the Will Smith movie; <laughs> it's terrible. But yeah, I, I, it, it, the, both of them are sort of old sci-fi novels, mm. and I have a signed copy of Gateway. Um, wow. in, in at cool. home as well Very yeah cool. uh, I just uh, I really enjoyed that book it was just something about it so I think that's a really great recommendation a great point to end on Theo it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for coming on the show no thank you for inviting me Web3, gaming, sci-fi, DAOs, we covered a lot in this chat with Theo. I hope it got you excited about what future you will choose. If you enjoyed this chat, please follow and rate the show. And until next time, keep looking outside.